Since the start of the new year, we've been exploring a new theme here at Auckland Insight, uh, one that I introduced a month or so ago, and I titled it Living a Life of Mutual Benefit, Exploring the Noble Eightfold Path. And as I think most of you know, the Noble Eightfold Path is really at the heart of everything that the Buddha taught over his 45-year teaching life. But because of the way the dharmas come to the West and the overemphasis on meditation and then the undervaluing of the other aspects of the path, I wanted to highlight the relational aspect of our practice by borrowing a phrase from Gil Fronstel, and that phrase is living a life of mutual benefit. Because it points to the understanding that what we're doing here is not just about making ourselves feel better. It has much broader and deeper implications because of the understanding of interdependence. All of our actions, our speech, even our thoughts has an effect beyond just our own immediate experience. And that effect can be either for good or for ill. It can lead to happiness or to unhappiness for ourselves and for others. So here we are, launching straight into an understanding of the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, which, as I think most of you know, is right or wise view. Now, not all of you were at the first couple of talks, so just a quick reminder that this word right, about what it means in this context, because in English the word right can sound a bit off-putting, even authoritarian, and it can bring up binary ideas of right and wrong, and good and bad, and so on. So to keep in mind that right is the usual translation of the Pali word samma, and according again to Gil Fransdell, this can also mean proper, complete, in harmony, or appropriate, as when we speak of having the right tool for the job. So I prefer to use the term wise view, particularly for this first path factor, because all of these eight factors are aimed at developing wisdom. And that wisdom is not just an intellectual set of beliefs, but it comes from exploring, in the context of our own lives, what leads to harm and suffering, and what leads away from harm and suffering, to ease to peace, to freedom. And when that ease and peace and freedom are experienced on the deepest level possible, this is one definition of nibbana, also known as awakening, enlightenment or liberation. And I'll be coming back to that soon, but just for now to say that wise view is both the start of this path and the culmination of it when it flowers as the wisdom of awakening. And this is because we need some inkling of wisdom in order to get us started, some sense that there might be a way to reduce our suffering and our confusion, that there might be a better way to live our lives that causes less harm to ourselves, to others, and to all the other life forms that we share this planet with. So without some initial spark of wise view, we wouldn't have begun to explore these teachings and these practices. 
But then to keep that spark alive, we need to keep applying wise view, to keep exploring in the context of our own lives what leads away from freedom and what leads towards it. And all of this development towards freedom is possible because of the mind's malleability, or to put it in contemporary neuroscience terms, our neuroplasticity, the fact that we can shape our minds by what and how we think. When it comes to working with views, though, one of the challenges that is that many of our views are invisible to us. And many of them were laid down quite early on in our development. And so we tend to unconsciously believe that we are experiencing the world exactly as it is. Rather than understanding that everything we experience is actually being filtered and often distorted by layers and layers and layers, these different views interacting with each other. And often, when they're not seen, those views keep us stuck in a fixed perception of who we are and who other people are and how the world is. And because our views give us an illusion of certainty and stability in an ever-changing and fragile world, we often cling quite tightly to those views. And sometimes it can even feel like a mini-death when we're forced to relinquish a daily held belief, one that we had thought was fundamentally true. I don't know if you've had that experience of having your worldview challenged in some way and just how shocking it can be. So it can take a surprising amount of effort at times to recognize when we are operating from fixed and limiting views and to challenge ourselves to open to other possibilities, other options, other ways of being in the world. So wise view is the first path factor because it's what helps us to discern all the wise aspects of the other path factors too. So as you know, we've been referring to some extent to Greg Kramer's book on the Noble Eightfold Path. And he says, right view logically comes first on the list of the path factors because its activity is necessary for the discernment of the others, for distinguishing their right forms from false paths and counterfeits. So recognizing the right version of each path factor, the version that works with all the other factors and leads towards untangling, that is our right view. And because the mind is nearly always thinking, right or wrong perspectives are always in play. And right view is at work as each path factor ripens. Because intrinsic to that ripening are the process of inquiry, reflection, study, conversation, moral choices and deep meditation. In other words, everything that we're doing here. So... In case that's sounding a little bit abstract, I'd like to bring this exploration very directly now into the context of our own understanding of what this path is even about. So those of you who were at the meeting last week uh, that Mark facilitated, 
he led us in an investigation of our thoughts. So we were exploring together what effect our thoughts had on the body and the mind, and whether those thoughts were rooted in helpful or harmful views. And I was uh, taking part in that inquiry, and for me it was a beautiful reminder of the power that comes from being listened to and being witnessed by another human being. And that listening and witnessing can draw out our inner wisdom more clearly. So in a few minutes I'm going to invite us into some optional relational practice together to explore our view of what the purpose of this practice is, which classically the purpose of this practice is Nibbāna. Now that very statement is a view that we can investigate to illuminate perhaps some of the less conscious views that we might have about what the practice is to us and why each of us are doing it. But before we go there, just to acknowledge that for some people, even though the overall goal of the Buddha's teachings is Nibbāna, which as I said is also translated as enlightenment, as awakening, as liberation, this term is one that for some people just doesn't have much resonance. And in fact, I often meet meditators who tell me that well, they have no interest in Nibbāna. And so often when I ask them, well, what is Nibbāna to you? Usually they can't tell me. They just know that it's not for them. So that's an example of an unconscious view that's shaping all kinds of other views and that perhaps might not be so helpful. And in many ways this lack of clarity about what Nibbāna is is not surprising for a couple of reasons. One is that there are lots of seemingly conflicting definitions out there. And even within one Buddhist tradition, even within Theravada, it's possible to find seemingly conflicting views, let alone between Buddhist traditions, for example, between the Zen or the Tibetan lineages and traditions. And it's true that some of the language in the discourses that is used to describe Nibbāna is quite obscure. And so maybe perhaps because of that confusion, at least in my own experience, it's not a topic that's talked about very often other than in the context of longer retreats for experienced meditators. So I'd like to just share a reflection from the American monk Ajahn Sumedho, who acknowledges the challenge of understanding what Nibbāna is. He says, A difficulty with the word Nibbāna is that its meaning is beyond the power of words to describe. It is essentially undefinable. Another difficulty is that many Buddhists see Nibbāna as something unobtainable, as so high and so remote that we're not worthy even to try for it. Or we see Nibbāna as a goal, as an unknown, an undefined something that we should somehow try to attain. He says most of us are conditioned in this way. We want to achieve or to attain something that we don't have now. So Nibbāna is looked at as something that if you work hard, keep the sila, meditate diligently, perhaps become a monastic, 
devote your life to practice, that your reward might be that eventually you attain Nibbana, even though you don't know what that is. So he goes on to say, Ajahn Chah would use the words, the reality of non-grasping. The reality of non-grasping as the definition for Nibbana. Realizing the reality of non-grasping. And that helps to put it in a context because the emphasis is on awakening to how we grasp and hold on even to words like Nibbana or Buddhism or practice or sila or whatever. So if you're not grasping what Nibbana means, that's because it is ultimately ungraspable and it is hard in the beginning to get a sense of what it's pointing to. So I'd like to bring in yet another way of understanding Nibbana that's been very helpful in my own practice. And in this understanding, Nibbana is understood as the heart-mind that is completely free from greed, completely free from hatred, completely free from ignorance. So you may recognize those as the three core afflictive energies that keep us caught in stress, distress, suffering. So in the suttas, in the Anguttara Nikaya, this is how Nibbana is spoken of. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and they experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and they experience no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So Nibbana is the heart-mind free from greed, hatred, delusion. And one aspect of that quote that I appreciate is that it points to the benefit of this practice as being not just for ourselves, but for others too. Because sometimes the orientation to enlightenment is misinterpreted as something self-centered or selfish. Yet to the extent that the heart-mind is free from greed and hatred and delusion, to that extent we're protecting ourselves and others from harm. And if the heart-mind is completely free, that's the greatest gift to humanity that anyone could give. And so that brings us back to this theme of living a life of mutual benefit. So there is an ethical and altruistic dimension to Nibbana that maybe isn't always so clear when it's translated as terms like emptiness or non-grasping. And so perhaps with this understanding, Nibbana is not something that's lofty or remote to be experienced in some imaginary, far-distant future. It's available in moments, right here in our everyday lives, whenever we remember 
to let go of craving, of clinging, of resisting. And in those moments, we can experience Nibbana as that freedom from greed or compulsion, from hatred or aversion, from ignorance or delusion. In other words, temporary freedom from all afflictive states. So, for the purpose of our exploration of Nibbana in the relational practice, we can think of it as freedom. Because I'm confident that every one of you here has tasted at least some moments of this freedom at some point, either on retreat or in your daily life. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here tonight. And part of the practice is learning to recognize and to appreciate how it feels when there is a temporary letting go of afflictive mind states, even if it's just for a few moments at a time. And to recognize and acknowledge those moments helps us to also notice the longer-term changes in our lives in the direction of less reactivity and towards more ease and peace and freedom. So I hope that's enough context to get us started with exploring this theme of Nibbana as freedom together now in the context of our own lives. So I'll be using the um, breakout rooms to move us into groups of three, perhaps one of two, so that you get to hear different perspectives or views. And then we can come back at the end to the whole group to hear what you discovered. So we're going to be using the form of separate speaker and separate listeners to begin with. And to be very clear, if you're speaking, you can keep this on any level you like. So you don't have to disclose your most intense experience ever. Freedom for you might be recognizing that when somebody doesn't replace the toilet paper, you don't get enraged the way you used to 10 years ago. So really trust your own sense of what feels appropriate to share. There's no pressure to be overly vulnerable here. And listeners, when you're in the role of listening, you're just giving the gift of your mindful presence. So you're allowing the speaker space to sense into what they want to say without interrupting in any way, not even to ask questions. And then when each person has had a turn to speak, we'll move into free-flow dialogue, so letting go of separate speakers and listeners, and just exploring together what was shared. And at that point, when you're in free-flow dialogue, just a couple of reminders. One is confidentiality, so not sharing anything that was shared with you beyond the group. And also, when we come back to the big group, not sharing what happened in the small group, unless you have the explicit permission of your partner. And then the second uh, invitation is to refrain from giving advice. You know, sometimes we really do feel like we could help that person's practice to deepen if we just told them about the perfect Dharma talk that they should listen to or the perfect book that they should read or the perfect retreat they should go on. But no matter how well-intentioned, advice-giving often doesn't land so well. So just giving people space to share their experience without needing to 
follow up with that in any way. So this is optional. Um, if you prefer not to do it with a partner, you might choose to do it as a written exercise. If you do choose not to do it with a partner, then in a few minutes it will be good if you could leave the call so that I'm clear that who's on the call wants to do the practice and I can break you into groups. If you do choose to leave, you're welcome to come back in about half an hour so that you can hear the group sharing at the end. Okay, so in a moment, oh, first I'll post those um, the contemplation questions into the chat box so that you can read them for reference. Very simple. Just exploring what does freedom mean to you and how do you see this showing up in your own life as a result of your practice. 